0: What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is not your average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can follow our podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So, uh, looking forward to getting into today's episode. Plenty of stuff going on this week. Um, As I teased on uh, Twitter, plenty of um, NFL draft. Uh, content this week. Uh, We'll get to that later in today's show, Uh, but I'm looking forward to that. We'll take a look at uh, all the things we're going to try to uh, do this week, so looking forward to that. Obviously, there's a lot of Celtic stuff to get to. Things are looking pretty good for the Green right now, the 3-0 lead over the Nets. You know, The Bruins are coming toward the end of the regular season, getting a little bit of a clearer picture as to uh, who their opponent might be in the first round of the playoffs. You know, Red Sox are, are playing baseball. It's not exactly going well, but, you know, it's uh, it's a lot of sports. Best time of the year for sports. You know, really, it starts with March Madness, and then, you know, you get the Masters, you get baseball starting, you get, you know, playoffs for two sports, and then you get a draft. It's like, you know, start of March Madness to the end of April. It's just wild you know when you think about all the different sports but uh, without further ado we're going to get right into it we're going to get right into the celtics um, and what a series it has been so far for the celtics a three nothing series lead over the nets uh, the seas can go for the sweep tonight and it's just uh it's pretty unbelievable it's pretty unbelievable what has happened um in this series and i think definitely there were definitely was there definitely were some concerns Um, i think coming into the series you know knowing that you're going to be going up against two of the best players in the nba and you know that even was still the thought after the first game a week ago when you know the celtics went on a buzzer beater a game that i think it was a lot closer than they would have liked Um, but they were able to steal the win and they've been able to win two other games since then you know really impressive Uh, come from behind, win in game two against the Nets, coming back from a 17-point first-half deficit. And then, you know, just really just kind of demoralizing the Nets in the second half of game three. The Celtics win that as well, 109-103. And obviously, here we are the morning or afternoon of game four, and the Celtics can finish off the sweep. You know it's uh, pretty amazing how well this team has played, um, and I know that nationally a lot of attention is on the Nets for their you know ineptitude in this series, but the Celtics deserve a lot of credit, and that's not just me saying it from you know a biased Boston perspective, but when you look at that series and you look at it from a you know unbiased point of view, the Celtics are outplaying the Nets. In almost every single facet of the game, especially defensively, they have found a way to neutralize Kevin Durant, which I'll be honest, I didn't think was possible. But the Celtics are playing defense at the highest level I think I've seen them play in a very long time, you know, maybe ever, you know, in my lifetime watching the Celtics, you know, really from the age of five or six, you know, I don't remember a defense playing this well you know and smothering and you know not letting one of the best players maybe the best player in the world you know be able to play the game the way that he is used to and i mean the celtics are are playing defense at such a level that you know kevin durant looks like just an ordinary player and you know it's the physicality it's the you know forcing him and his teammates into bad decisions you know it's it's, it's wild to just see, you know, just how out of sorts he is and just how, to, how out of sorts that whole team has been. You know, I think you, you look at what Kyrie did in game one, and obviously that was pretty outstanding. You know, almost drops 40 points, almost gets the win. But since then, you know, he's not really been the same guy. You know, Durant has had a really tough time getting into any type of offensive rhythm. He's shooting 36% for the series. And you know, averaging 22 points a game, which, you know, is 22 points is nothing to sneeze at. But, you know, when you're looking at someone like Durant, who's probably one of the best playoff performers of all time, you know, it's, it just is a really, it's a credit to what the Celtics are doing um, defensively. And I think, does it have a lot to do with the fact that Ime Udoka was an assistant coach With the Nets last year, you know, I think that that's part of it, you know, that he has some kind of inside knowledge to Kevin Durant and things that maybe he did or didn't respond to well, you know, in practices or in games, you know, and I think that is really invaluable to the Celtics. But, you know, the Celtics are also a team that have guarded at an unbelievably high level the last couple months. You know, you have Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year. But you also have Al Horford, who is, you know, playing basketball like he's 23. You know, I've not seen him play this well since maybe his college career at Florida. Um, But Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, you know, incredibly underrated defenders. And then you can bring someone like Derek White off the bench, who is an unbelievable one-on-one defender. And it just seems like everywhere the Nets go, the Celtics are right there. And if Durant gets the ball, the Celtics are throwing two guys at him and forcing him into turnovers, you know, stripping the ball, forcing him into bad passes. You know, it's getting to the point that late in games, the Nets are not giving the ball to Durant, which is just wild. But I think it's like he has become so frustrated that, I'm not going to say that, like, he doesn't want the ball, but I think it's like it's getting to a point where it's like you get him the ball and there's someone that's hounding him. You know, if it's Marcus Smart, if it's Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you know, if it's Horford, if it's Derek White, you know, I just listed off five defenders right there. And so it's like, you know, it's uh, it's, it's pretty amazing what the defense has been able to do um, through this whole series. You know, I really was expecting that, okay, you know, here comes Durant. He's going to have a great game in game two or he's going to have a great game in game three. And it didn't really happen. So... You know, it's it's a great start, but I think the Celtics have to, you know, come in with the mentality that they are gonna end the series tonight, because I think you don't wanna give the Nets any type of hope that, okay, if if we can win a game, we can win two. And if you could win two, you can win three. So I think the Celtics have to play with the same intensity, and I think that they've done a great job of every single moment the, in this series that seems to be going in the net's favor the celtics nip it right in the bud you know come up with a big steal you know come up with a demoralizing play off you know an inbounds pass that happened twice in game three where the celtics you know the nets go on a little bit of a run you know knock down a couple threes get the crowd into the game and then the celtics come in with a steal and a basket right out of a timeout and it's just like as as Scal said many times on Saturday it's demoralizing it's incredibly demoralizing when you have a team that you feel like you're making some headway and then the other team comes in and just you know outcompetes you and i think that we've seen that throughout this series and i think you know the Celtics have to continue to play that way and have to continue to you know frustrate the nets and get them to a point where they just give up but i think you're not going to be able to get them to get there if you're not playing at the same level that you've been playing throughout the series. So, you know, the Nets are not going to lay down, and I think the Celtics know that. Um, And I think the Celtics know that in a game like this, you have to bring force, and you have to bring the same intensity that you brought for the previous three games. You know, play this game like this is a must-win game, um, because... If the Celtics are able to win tonight, you know, they're probably going to get some good time off, which I think is only going to be the best thing for Robert Williams. So, you know, look for the Celtics to continue to play some good defense. You know, curious to see how the Nets come out, um, because there's definitely been a lot of turmoil going on with that team uh, within the last couple of days. So I think the Celtics could be a beneficiary, that they could take advantage of that. But, you know, it's Kevin Durant, and I think... Yes, the Celtics have slowed him for three games, but you want to make sure that you can slow him for four games. You know, don't want to give them any type of hope that they think that they can get back in the series. So, you know, look for the defense to continue to play well. Uh, I'm curious to see how the Nets respond. Um, Do they try to do something different in their starting lineup? You know, does Nick Claxton start? Does Blake Griffin get more minutes? I mean, he did give them a little bit of a spurt, but there's only so much that he can do from a defensive standpoint. And that, I think, really is what is the Nets' biggest issue in this series is they don't have a good defensive big. You know, Nick Claxton is a really good shot blocker. He's really athletic. But I think that the Nets need more defensively in the interior um, if they're going to make things interesting. But I think... For the Celtics it's just playing hard defense and you know moving the ball and playing good offensive team basketball that they've been playing for the majority of this series Uh, so looking forward to game four tonight seven o'clock Celtics can get the sweep um, in Brooklyn so that would be very uh, very very satisfying for this team to be able to beat the Nets you know the same team that embarrassed them last year so you know, look for the Celtics to be motivated and try to close out this series. Um, obviously, another big story in game three was uh, the return of Robert Williams, Celtics big man who had torn his meniscus at the end of March against the Timberwolves, but was back and played 16 minutes in game three. So that was a really a welcome sight to see that, you know, Rob is back and playing at or maybe not playing at a high level because I think he only scored two points, but I think, you know, just having the ability to have him on the floor and, you know, have his presence on the floor, even if it was just for 16 minutes. And I think he probably will again play few minutes tonight, but I think just to have him there, just to have him on the floor, have his presence, you know, really excites this Celtics team because they really enjoy playing with him. You know, they love throwing lobs to him, but I think, it's not only just having his presence on the floor, but having his presence around the team, you know, and I think it was pretty evident to see in game two that the guys really enjoyed having him on the bench, you know, now they love having him in the game, they're in the game, so it's definitely a a welcome sight to see him playing basketball and, you know, being able to play with the same explosiveness, you know, you really didn't see any type of, any type of uh, limitations um, on Saturday night, so I think that's also a really good sign that the Celtics can, you know, bring him along. But I think obviously be very careful that, you know, they don't want to have a, a re-injuring type of thing, where you know he plays too many minutes and, you know, you get, you re-injure, you know, the knee. So I'm curious to see what his minutes are going to look like tonight. You know, I would imagine it's probably going to be very similar to game three. You know, 20 minutes, something like that. I think you probably can't expect more than that. And I think it probably makes sense, you know, from like a medical standpoint that the Celtics don't want him to play, you know, heavy minutes. But at the same time, if the Celtics are going to advance and win this game tonight, there's going to be a lot of time off between now and the start of the next series. So, you know... There could be something to be said for him playing more minutes than he did in Game 3, but I think if I'm the Celtics, I'm going to err on this side of caution and not have him play, you know, upwards of 20-25 minutes uh, tonight. So I'd be curious to see what he can do tonight, you know, and I think bringing him back really solidifies your, your depth and I think makes your team even deeper because it gives you, the ability to start Rob or bring him off the bench. And, you know, Tice can start if he needs, or he can come off the bench when Rob is fully, fully healthy. So I'm very curious to see what that uh, looks like when Rob is, is back and is his full self. Um, I think that Tice has done a pretty solid job um, in this series. You know, I think that he's he wasn't going to be, you know, a big focal point in the series. Um, And I think the Celtics have done a really good job bringing in someone like Tice at the deadline, who, okay, he's not going to do exactly what Rob does, but he's a player that I think understands how they're going to play and how they want to play. And I think he fits in, you know, really well. So I'm curious to see, you know, what his role is going to look like once Rob comes back. You know, he gives you another really good guy that can come off the bench, knows his role. And I think... It's just going to make this team even more, even more deep. Um, And then speaking of, you know, getting this team as deep as possible, I think, you know, one of the guys that I think needs to step up is Derek White. And I think he's someone that I think if the Celtics want to make a deep run and get to a championship, you know, he's going to need to make some shots. Um, Really struggled in this series. Has played three games, 55 minutes. Is just four for thirteen. Has made one three pointer. um, You know, shooting thirty percent the series, but has had some has averaged uh, four rebounds in the three games and a couple of assists. So I think you know he's someone that you want to see a little bit more from offensively, but I don't think it's a it's a huge issue in this series. But I think if you're going to be going up against the Milwaukee's and the Miamis and the teams that have a bunch of guys that could score at a high at a high pace or had a, at a high clip you know Derek white you need to have him be able to get some buckets as well um, so one last little Celtics thing uh, before we move on Marcus smart was awarded the defensive player of the year last week I actually think it was awarded on Monday um, <laughs> after we were done recording so that was a little annoying, but I think Marcus definitely deserved, uh, deserved the award. And I think he's a guy that I think his whole career, he's worked hard. He's been a hard worker and I think has always, has always, yeah. what's the word? I'm struggling for the word, but um, he's always endeared himself um, to the Celtics faithful. I think just with how hard he he's played. And he has played really from the time that he got here. And I think, you know, sure, he has his flaws. He's had his, his flaws in the past. But I think that this is the season that he has really put it all together. Um, and not just from a defensive standpoint, but I think just from the total package as a player. You know, he's someone that can knock down the shots that he gets. But he can also be a guy who can create for other players. And I think... You have seen that throughout the majority of this season and in the playoffs that he is very willing and very is willing and able to make plays that are right for the team, and I think that you know he's always been an elite defender, but I think it's great to see him get validation, get you know recognition for the season that he had, and I think he's the most versatile defender in the league. You know, you look at what he can do from a defending standpoint; can really defend. 1 to 5 and I think that's what kind of sets him apart in my opinion to a Rudy Gobert that you know sure Rudy Gobert can defend at the rim and he's one of the best if not the best rim protector in the league but I think you know Marcus defends out in the perimeter and defends a lot more of uh, like a variety of different types of offensive players so you know I think versatility is the most important thing on defense And so I think that's why he was the most deserving um, of this award. So congrats to Marcus. And, you know, hopefully we see more of that um, elite intense defense as the Celtics go deeper into the playoffs. So again, Celtics-Nets game four tonight, 7 o'clock. We'll take a look at the rest of the NBA playoffs later in the podcast. Um, But a great start for the Celtics, and hopefully they can finish it off tonight. So now we are going to move to the Bruins and talk about the uh, Bee's successful weekend. A couple of wins against the Rangers and then beating the Canadians last night 5-3. Um, some good moments, I think, from both of these games. I think the Bruins played one of their best, most complete games of the season. Um, Saturday afternoon at the Garden against the Rangers. Um, you know, kind of a surprise to see. Posternach, Lindholm, and Ulmark all return in that game. Um, I was not expecting that Pasternak and Lindholm were going to be available, but they were, and they played and made a really big impact in their first games back. Pasternak with a goal and an assist, and Lindholm, I believe, led the Bruins in time on ice in that game, and then Olmark obviously was outstanding in the win. So I think it it gives you some hope that I think the Bruins are you know, ready for the postseason with a couple of wins against some postseason opponents um, or potential postseason opponents, I should say. Um, So it was good to see them play at that high level on Saturday, um, win a low-scoring game, because I think those are the types of games that you're going to need to win in the playoffs. You know, you're going to need to be able to make the most of your scoring opportunities. You're going to need to play really good, solid defense, and you're going to need to get, you know, really good, if not elite, goaltending, if you're going to, you know, be a team that goes deep in the playoffs. So I thought that that was a really successful game. And then obviously Bruins um, sitting those three guys against Montreal, which I think was the original plan that they didn't want to have them play um, on a back-to-back. But the Bruins did come out with a win, a couple of goals for Holla, a couple of goals for Patrice per- Patrice Pergeron and... Uh, Montreal made it interesting uh, in the third period, but the Bruins able to hang on. McAvoy also scored in the Bruins' win, so a good solid game, you know, definitely some some weirdness, and that came last night with um, Eric Hall's shootout attempt, but uh, he did not touch the puck and was able to score. I know it looked very similar to uh, Brad Marchand's failed shootout attempt a couple of years ago where he, you know, kind of touched the puck and then once you touch it and mishandle it, then that's it. You don't get a chance to shoot. So uh, Hall just barely missed making contact to the puck, but he got it and scored, uh, scored two goals last night, actually, um, and has been really, really solid for this team, I think, since the start of the new year and really since the start of um, putting him on the line with Pasternak and Hall. You know, I think that the three of them have played at a really high level when they've been healthy. Um, And I think giving the Bruins the kind of the reaffirmation that or affirming for the Bruins that, you know, Eric Holla was a really solid offseason addition. And obviously there were a lot of concerns about him out of the gate. There were a lot of things said on Twitter about him, but I think he has responded. And, you know, you look at his season statistically, it's the best season that he's had since he had the 55-point season. Um, in Vegas, when he was selected um, to the expansion team. So, you know, he's played at a really high level. You know, I think the Bruins, for some players, it gives them, that gives them an ability, but I think like the Bruins have had a good success with certain guys that they sign in free agency that, you know, come off some down years or maybe they don't play as well. But then they play for the Bruins, and you know, their play really really improves. And I think really, it's something about the environment that I think helps guys like that, guys like Halla, be able to perform at a high level. Now, it's not every single off-season, not every single free agent addition, but I think that there are certain guys that, you know, tend to kind of pick up and play at like a career high level. You know, some of the bottom six guys that have come through the Bruins in recent years have played really well after signing contracts. You know, you think about someone like Riley Nash, you know, played probably the best hockey of his career. When he was here with the Bruins. So, you know, just tremendous to see that, you know, Eric is playing at such a high level and, you know, giving the Bruins a good offensive player that can mesh well with the, you know, guys that aren't on the first line. Because I think that's the most important thing for the Bruins is getting consistent scoring from the other lines. Now, I know that the first line has not been perfect over the last few weeks. You know, Marchand has gone. 10, 11 games without a goal. But I think just knowing that you can have the ability to um, rely on your other offensive guys other than your top line, because you look at what Coyle and and Holla have done, just for example, the two of them are, you know, 43 points. David Gracie had 44 last year. So, you know, you have two guys that I think have carried the load pretty well. Um, this season. So that's been a really good positive. But I think for the Bruins and, you know, getting the guys back healthy is the most important thing. Um, And we saw that on Saturday. So I think that that's something to feel good about with this team, that, you know, they are back to full health and, you know, could pose a threat to one of the top seeds in the Eastern Conference, you know, if it shakes out that way, if they do end up playing, you know, one of those teams in the first round. Um, so speaking of the injuries and getting guys into the lineup very curious to see how the Bruins approach these final three games of the regular season with uh, the home games this week against Florida tomorrow night and then against Buffalo on Thursday night and then the Bruins will finish the regular season Friday evening in Toronto so very curious to see how they approach it you know I think. You could see some of the big guns get some games off. You know, I think with Pasternak and Lindholm, you want to see them play at least two games this week, if not all three, um, just to make sure that they can kind of get their legs under them and be ready for the playoffs. But it was kind of surprising to me how well the the two of them played on Saturday, That it didn't really look like they had missed a lot of time. You know, Pasternak, I think it was, he was a little rusty. I think the power play still of needs to get back in rhythm you know getting him back into the lineup but I think he looked good you know Lindholm looked good it looked like he'd been in the lineup the whole time it didn't really look like he missed any time um, so that was really good to see um, and then obviously Olmark was really good on Saturday and I think that was the biggest thing for me you know how did he how was he going to look coming back from injury and he was outstanding and I think you know, really kind of solidified his status as potentially or, you know, probably the number one goalie when the playoffs start. You know, not that that really matters because I think, you know, both he and Swayman are probably going to end up sharing the net. But it just was good to see that all three guys could come back and be healthy and you know the Bruins will try to make a decision I think as to you know who will be the official number one guy or the number one goalie that opens the playoffs Uh, so I think that will be something to watch you know who gets which game this week I wouldn't be surprised if they give Allmark the um, game against the Panthers um, because that's a potential playoff opponent so You would think that he gets the net uh, for that game, and then, you know, he and Swayman will probably, you know, split the last two. Um, You could see some players uh, down in Providence making um, appearances for the Bruins in the final couple games. Oscar Steen, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets into a game. Uh, Stednica probably too. You know, I don't think we're going to see... Lysel, I would be very surprised. I think that he's been playing well for the Vancouver Giants, but I don't think he'll be coming in to play any games. Uh, Georgi Merkulov might be able to appear in a game or two. Beecher, Johnny Beecher is someone to look at too. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Troy Grossnick gets a game in net. Potentially, but I think the Bruins will probably want to look at, you know, finalizing the net for the playoffs. Uh, Jack or is someone who will probably get into the lineup as well. Um, you know, Josh Brown might get a game or two. You might see Froden, yes, uh, Jesper Froden, uh, play a game. You might see Anton Bleed um, because I think the Bruins will probably want to rest guys. But I wouldn't be surprised if that that doesn't happen until Friday, until the last game. Of the regular season. I can't imagine that guys are going to be resting, you know, for the game Tuesday night or Thursday night. Um, but they could. You know, the Bruins always have those, you know, home er, the, like, final home games of the season that I think it would be nice if some of the guys do suit up for that, but then, you know, don't make the trip to Toronto. It is, It is possible. You know, there's an outside possibility that the Bruins could play Toronto and they could just end up staying there um, if the playoff seedings shake out that way. Um, And that's actually going to be our next kind of topic to talk about with the Bruins is taking a look at what their playoff opponents may potentially look like when the playoffs start a week from tonight. I'm not sure when the Bruins will be playing. You know, if they are going to open on Monday or will they play Tuesday or Wednesday perhaps, uh, but taking a look at the standings, we'll take a closer look around the rest of the league later in the podcast, but as it stands right now, Bruins currently in that first card position with 103 points, Washington is three points behind them, both of them have three games left, so it looks pretty clear to me that the Bruins will finish in that first wildcard spot and have to play one of the top two seeds in East. Currently the Bruins are three points behind Tampa Bay for the third place spot in the Atlantic. So both teams three games to go. It doesn't really look like the Bruins are gonna be able to, you know, get, get past Tampa Bay. You know, I think it's possible if Tampa Bay drops a game and the Bruins win all three of their final games. Um, but it doesn't look very likely. And then if you look in the Metro, this is where things, things might be pretty clear. Um, so how things work in the playoffs is the number one team, the team with the most points, um, ends up playing the team with the fewest points. So right now, it would be Florida against Washington in the first round, and the Bruins would be matched up against Carolina. So... Carolina has two games left, the Rangers have three games left, Carolina is up by four points, so Carolina pretty much just needs two points in their last two games to you know, get that number one seed in the Metro, so it looks pretty likely that the Bruins are going to play Carolina in the first round. That kind of looks like the most likely first round opponent. You know, I think that there is also a possibility that Washington could maybe jump them and the Bruins would then play Florida. But I don't think that that's likely. I think what is the most likely is the Bruins are going to play Carolina, which obviously is not the most ideal opponent with Carolina outscoring the Bruins 16-1 to in all three wins this year. So, you know, that obviously doesn't bode well. But I think, you know, a couple of those games were either early in the season or in a game where the Bruins didn't have their full lineup. So that at least makes me feel a little bit better that maybe those those scores are a little skewed. Um, but what's not skewed is how good Carolina is. They're a very good hockey team. You know, I think they have probably the deepest forward group in the NHL. And then they have a defense too that's, you know, not too shabby either. They can play a run-and-gun style. They can play low-scoring games. They're really a team that I think is probably the number one team the Bruins would have liked to avoid in the playoffs. But, hey, it's going to be what it's going to be. And I think, you know, regardless of how the Bruins finish, they were going to play a tough team. You know what I think? Again, it's going to be what it's going to be. You're going to play a hard team. And if it's going to be Carolina, it's going to be Carolina. The silver lining, though, about Carolina is that their goaltending situation is in flux um, because I think both of their goalies, the usual goalies that they've used this season, Frederick Anderson and Antti Ranta, are both hurt, uh, both suffering injuries within the last couple of weeks. Um, so that is kind of very interesting there that Carolina might have some issues in terms of the goaltending, and that could be a tremendous opportunity for the Bruins to take advantage of. I'm not sure what the extent of both of those guys' injuries are, but, you know, if Carolina has to start the series with their number three or number four goaltender, you know, that's that's a pretty good break for the Bruins. Um, and I think, sure, the Bruins would have their hands full against Carolina's forwards um, and their defense too, but I don't think that this is as bad of a matchup as some people think you know i think carolina is a team that i think the bruins have proven historically that they can play pretty well against in the playoffs you know they have two playoff wins against them in the last three years winning in the bubble and then winning in the conference finals in 2019 but then again this carolina team is a lot different than the teams that the bruins played two and three years ago you know this is a team that's a lot deeper um But I think, you know, as I said, again, whatever team you're going to play is going to be tough, you know, if it was going to be Carolina, if it's if it was going to be the Rangers, if it was going to be, you know, Tampa Bay or Toronto, it's like all those teams are going to be tough to beat. So, you know, you kind of just take it in stride and whoever you draw is whoever you draw. And I think it's not going to affect how the Bruins play the final three games. You know, I would think that they play the final two games at home as kind of regular season games and then they give guys off um, the final game of the season in Toronto. So taking a look at one final Bruins thing, uh, the seventh player award is an award that uh, Nessen gives out to a Bruins player that has um, exceeded expectations. I think typically that's how we know of the award, so Very curious to see who wins it this year, because I think that there are a couple of worthy candidates, you know, I think just three off the top of my head. Um, Jeremy Swayman, you know, I think is someone that I think I would certainly think about voting for again. You know, I think that he is someone that certainly he played really well and played at a high level last year, but he played 10 games. And I think it was hard to, you know, come to any type of conclusion about the type of player he was going to be. And I think the expectation was that he was going to probably share the net until Rask came back and then he would get sent down to Providence. But I think obviously things did not work out that way. Um, But I think that he has had a good head on his shoulders all year long. And I think has, you know, given the Bruins chances to win almost every game that he's played. Um, And so I think, it's hard it was I think it's hard for people to expect that he was going to be this good this season. You know, you look at 23 13 3 915 save percentage, goals against at 237, but it was, you know, pretty close to being one of the best in the league at various points this season. So I think that I expected that he was going to play well, but I didn't think he was going to be this good. So I think he definitely deserves some love for that award. Maybe he wins it, maybe he doesn't. But I think that he's been really good um, and should be one of the leading candidates. Um, The other player that I think should get some love is Trent Frederick. I think that in his first full season in the NHL, I think that he has played at a really high level. You know, he's been a really solid player on that third line, and I think the grouping of him, Coyle, and Smith, you know, has has carried the Bruins at times and I think has given the Bruins a chance to, you know, roll out a line that can help them out, can score goals, can hold the puck in the offensive offensive zone, you know, play a good possession game. Um, And he's put up points too, you know, seven goals, 10 assists, 17 points. You know, I'm not sure that people really expected that he was going to be able to put together you know, this type of season at the beginning of the season. So that's why I think he definitely should be someone that should be looked at to possibly win the award. But the favorite, in my opinion, is Eric Halla, And I think, you know, talked about him earlier that the season that he's had has been, you know, probably one of the best of his career, probably second best of his career, you know, since the year that he had when he was uh, in Vegas. Um, but he's been really solid this year you know really since the new year he's really turned a page 17 goals, 26 assists for 43 points is sixth tied for sixth on the Bruins um, in points with Charlie Coyle. So I think you know there wasn't a lot of expectation when he got signed and I think you know certainly out of the gate there were people that were like, okay, this is really kind of a wasted signing but you know since the calendar has, switch to 2022, he's been one of the Bruins' best play, best players. And I think, you know, from the start of the season and his, you know, expectation when he got signed, I don't think that people expected he was going to play at this, at this high level. You know, I think that that was the hope when they signed him, but I think it took him a bit to find his game, but I think he definitely should be the front runner uh, for this award. Um, because I think at the end of the day, it's about exceeding expectations and you know, I think that him producing at a second line center rate for, you know, the majority of the season, you know, definitely should qualify as exceeding expectations. So, um, I think that he should win really looking forward to seeing who wins, you know, with the, I believe that that would get awarded either t- either Tuesday night or Thursday. You know, obviously the Bruins only have two games left at the Garden, so... Curious to see how that shakes out. Uh, We will now get to the Red Sox and talk about the uh, frustrating time the offense has had recently. Um, You know, scoring runs has been kind of an issue almost all season for the Red Sox. It kind of seemed like they were turning a corner... Uh, in a couple of those games against the Twins, but, you know, offensively has kind of been the the downfall of this team um, in the first 16 games of the season. So, you know, I think it, you know, it's 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 unfortunate, but I think I was thinking about this the other day. I think that, you know, when you open a season and you open a season quite, you know, you open a season like this that I think is unlike any other season, that we've ever seen with baseball, you know, with the lockout going into spring training and teams having to kind of get things together in a really expedited manner, you know, has been an issue for some teams and the Red Sox, I think, are included. And I think, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to make excuses for the team, but I think you have to be realistic that, you know... A a quick spring training is not necessarily the best thing for all, all these teams. You know, certainly there are some teams that have come out of the gate playing really good baseball. And I think that, you know, that's important that they've been able to get off to hot starts. You know, when you think about the Dodgers and the Mets, but I think... It's also it's also you know very easy to forget the type of you know spring training that both of these teams or that all the all these teams have had to face, you know, and so I think you kind of have to consider that a little bit, but I think you know it is concerning that the offense is not really performing at the way that we would expect. but you know, I also think you know, it, I almost would rather have this happen you know, the offense be struggling, then the pitching be struggling. Um, Because I think if the starting pitching was, you know, not good enough, you would not feel good about anything. You know, I feel like, you know, with, again, the, the truncated spring training, it probably was likely that pitching was going to be, you know, something that was going to come out of the gate really strong and that the offense was kind of going to lag behind. Now, I know that that's not the story with every team, but I think that you know the truncated pre or spring training has a lot more to do with the offense than it does with the starting pitching. you know, and I'm saying pitching or I'm saying starting pitching in particular because I think the bullpen has had some issues with some some games recently, you know holding leads and all that, but I think that the, for the most part the starting pitching has done its job then said it's, that it's actually been pretty solid, I think you know, it's given the Red Sox a chance to win, you know, majority of the games that they have played, you know, when you look at, when you look at the, kind of the team pitching and you take a look at, take a look at, you know, ERA, the Red Sox are kind of right there in the middle, but I think, you know, starting pitching has not been a big issue for this team that I think if all these pitched really well out of the gate, you've seen good. Outings from Michael Walker, and that's been really good to see. Um, You know, Tanner Houck has had some good starts, too. Rich Hill, I thought, pitched really well yesterday for the short period that he pitched. You know, Garrett Whitlock has been pitching well, too. So, you know, I think for the most part, the starting pitching has been pretty solid. But the offense just really can't keep it together for, you know, full games. You know, it's great to see them get some runs early on in Sunday's game. But I think you have to keep it going. You know, you can't just expect to score two runs in the first inning and, you know, not not have to score runs the rest of the game. Like, it's not gonna work like that. So I think it's going to be a very interesting and telling series against Toronto again, you know, team that you just lost two out of three against. You know, how can your offense perform? You know, can your offense kind of get back to what you would expect it to be coming out of the gate in the regular season? So, very curious to see how they can play against the Blue Jays and play against a team that, you know, they're really going to need to score runs against. Because when you look at... How talented Toronto is you have to keep pace with that team so very curious to see how they do against Toronto starting a four-game set against the Blue Jays that kicks off tonight at seven Ivaldi and Pavetta and Waka will go the first three games so obviously talking about Michael Waka and the, Solid start to the year that he has had. He pitched really well in the first game against the Rays on Friday night. the four to three Red Sox hung on for the win, um, but I thought he pitched pretty well, and I think it gives you some hope that the starting rotation can get guys out and you know pitch deep into ball games and you know try to keep this Red Sox team afloat. You know seven and nine is not the worst record in the world, and I think that. You know, naturally, there are some people that are trying to sound the alarms, and I still think it's too early for that. You know, I think you kind of have to not give the offense a runway, but at the same time, like, you're starting spring training, you know, with absolutely really no preparation at all. You know, when you think about when spring training would start normally, you know, it starts Valentine's Day. The Red Sox... Or the major league baseball was in the midst of a lockout. You know, nothing really changed. March seventh, and it's like, at that point, it's like there's so much that you know goes into such a short period of time, and I hate to keep harping on it, but I kind of feel like it's legitimate. You know, when you think about how how crazy this season has been so far that. You know, spring training starts so late, and you have so few games to, to get it together. And so I think, you know, if we're really gonna sit here at seven and nine and be like, oh, you know, they're a disaster, they're a mess. It's like, I don't know. It's like, did you really expect that they're gonna come out of the gate and be fourteen and two? Like, sure, I think that you would expect that the offense would be performing the way that we expect, but, you know, things happen. You know, it's a long season. There are ebbs and flows to a season, and it's almost like I kind of get sick of doing this for every single sport that, you know, like, God God forbid you don't start the season really, really hot, you know, and then people start to wonder, oh, like, what's going on? You know, it's just like, I don't know. I just think especially with baseball, you play 162 games, you know, are really trying to kind of write write this team off. 16 games into the year and it's like believe it or not there are people that wrote off this team when they started 0-3 last year you know three games like what are are we doing here like and I don't know maybe I'm crazy and maybe it's just the whole you know Boston negativity that gets to me but it's just like seven and nine is not the worst place to be I mean you could be the Cincinnati Reds you could be you know two and twelve it could be a lot worse than it is right now and Let me tell you, if the pitching, if the starting pitching is holding up, you're fine. You know, and I think the offense will figure it out. And I think that I almost would rather have a team that's struggling offensively than struggling to get good innings pitching-wise. Because I think that that would be a lot more concerning if this starting rotation, you know, couldn't get through five or six innings and the offense has to score a lot of runs. It's almost like... You know, and I know that I wouldn't rather have the offense, you know, struggling. I obviously want the offense to be able to score runs. But I think if the starting pitching is kind of where it's supposed to be, the team is going to be fine. The offense will figure it out. The Red Sox will get hot and they'll be fine. You know, I'm not really ready to sound the alarms. You know, if we're still doing this a month from now and the Red Sox are kind of struggling around 500, then I think it might be time to start getting really concerned um, and, you know, maybe try to look in the trade market to try to get, you know, some more, some more bats in the offense. So, you know, one of the guys that I think is trying to find consistency is Trevor Story. You know, he's someone that, speaking of how crazy the spring training was and, you know, all that, it was pretty crazy for him too. You know, I think had to deal with um, it, or had a had a child that was born you know obviously signed with the red sox pretty late in spring training you know he only got something like 11 or 12 at bats in spring training which is not enough not really at all and so i think the slow start to his season kind of was understandable but i think that he's starting to find his consistency um, in recent games you know i think he's starting to hit a lot better you know, the batting average is, has gone up. I know it's only 234, but I think he's someone that I think is now starting to kind of catch his, catch his rhythm. And I think if that's the case, you know, if he's starting to catch the rhythm, then I think the rest of the offense shouldn't be far behind. I mean, I think it's it's tough because you're not getting the quality at-bats at the top of the lineup. You know, Kike Hernandez is hitting 180. Um, and so I think you know, you've struggled at the top of the order. And I think that that has a lot to do with why the team is struggling. Trevor Story is bad at lead off the last couple games. So, you know, hopefully the Red Sox can get into a rhythm offensively with him leading off. i um, very curious to see about this series against Toronto, if the offense can kind of try to return, you know, in a, in a place that Toronto, that I think they have historically hit pretty well. So I'm curious to see how the offense does in this four game set. Um, obviously with the Red Sox going to Toronto, we talked about this last week with, um, Tanner Houck not being vaccinated and, you know, not being able to pitch the series finale. I believe he was scheduled to pitch, you know, it'll be curious to see if the Red Sox do have any more players that, you know, are, are unavailable. I've not heard about any other guys that aren't available, you know, obviously Alex Cora still dealing with the COVID. So I'm not sure if he's going to make the trip uh, to Toronto, but I think again, you know, it's it's not really something you want to have to deal with, but it's going to be what it's going to be. But I just will tell you, you know, if guys are refusing to, you know, help the team and refusing to be vaccinated, it's like you're hurting the team. You know, we talked about this last week. You know, this is not something that's a personal choice. It's just not because it affects everything else, you know, not even from a professional sports standpoint, but from a life standpoint, like, you know, it just, I I don't really want to go into it, but it's like at the end of the day, you are affecting other people. You're affecting your team and whether or not you're available to play a a game, you know, that directly affects other people. It's not just about you. And I'm just kind of like sick and tired of people that are saying that it's a personal choice because it's not at the end of the day it's just not and it's not for professional athletes who literally cannot be available to play games if they don't have it and who cares if it's if you think it's fair or not that literally is not the point but you know it's just going to be frustrating to have to deal with this and you know the red sox maybe have guys unavailable in toronto but Again, I don't want to speculate because we don't really know. So I guess we'll we'll find out later today, you know, if any guys are not available. So, but, you know, curious to see how the Red Sox will do this week against the Blue Jays. All four or, all th- or three games this week starting on Monday night tonight start at 7.07 and then I think Thursday's game is at 3.07. So I think that that will do it for the Red Sox. We'll move on to the Patriots. We've got a lot of Patriots stuff to get to, obviously. The first round of the NFL draft will take place on Thursday night. Thursday night will be the first round of the draft. The Patriots will be on the clock at 21. So you might have to wait a little bit for the Patriots to pick, uh, So make sure you definitely get plenty of other things to do before they pick because it might be a while. Um, so I'm curious to see what the Patriots do at twenty one because I think that there are a lot of options. You know, I think depending on who's available, the Patriots may trade back. They may do what they did last year and you know trade back and get someone. Um, or no, two years ago. No, not last year. Two years ago. Uh, that the Patriots may not like where they are and then just trade back and, you know, get a player that they really like. So I'm curious to see how they approach it. You know, I think that if there are some elite players at cornerback or linebacker, then the Patriots may be more likely to make the pick. But I think that if there are certain guys that are off the board, then they may be more apt to trade it and be like, okay, we can trade back, you know, probably get more value, probably get a couple more picks if they are gonna do that. So I think that it's probably likely they're gonna trade out of the twenty one out of the that they're gonna trade out of the twenty first pick twenty first pick, but I think you know, who knows? Because I think this draft in particular is gonna be very unpredictable because I don't think that there's a lot of, you know, really high-end talent at the top of the at the top of the draft. You know, I think certainly there are guys who are gonna be in the top five that are going to be really good players, but, you know, really outside of that, it's hard to really kind of make any type of predictions for for any of these guys because I think the draft this year is very deep, but it's not very top heavy. You know, it's not like you have 10 or 12 prospects that are like, okay, these guys are going to be legitimate NFL starters and, you know, are going to be stars in the league. You kind of don't really know that, you know, this year is one of those years that I think there's a lot of questions about who might even be the number one pick. And that's to me, a dead giveaway that, okay, this draft is not going to be really top heavy, but it might be really, really deep because I think at certain positions, there are a lot of guys who could be really good players, linebacker, cornerback, wide receiver. I think, are just a couple of positions where it's like, okay, you know, you're going to see a lot of really good talent out of those positions in particular. Um, And those positions, you know, you could classify as needs for the Patriots, which I think makes it even more interesting. Um, So taking a look at some positions of need, I think linebacker and cornerback for me, I think are the most important that I think. You want to prioritize speed, and I think that that was pretty pretty obvious by the statements made by Matt Groh a couple weeks ago, the player, uh, the Patriots' new player or director of player personnel, um, that he's made it pretty clear that the defense or that they want to prioritize speed all over the field, not just necessarily on defense, but I think cornerback, linebacker are huge because I think. You saw how Buffalo was kind of able to pick apart the Patriots in the playoffs. And I think the Patriots want to make sure that they kind of have the correct amount of athletes, correct amount of speed, you know, that they can not allow teams to kind of run all over the field against them. So cornerback, I think, definitely is is a big spot. You know, losing J.C. JC Jackson was tough. Uh, the Patriots may be tipping their hand and they may be thinking okay, we might want to go into more zone defense. And I think, you know, JC was a very good player, but I think man-to-man, that's kind of where his strength is. And so the Patriots could be looking at guys who can play the zone and guys who have good speed, you know, that can deal with Tyreek Hill, who you're going to be playing twice a year. So I think cornerback for me is most important. Linebacker I think is also too, is important too. Because the Patriots really like athletic linebackers, and I think, or they kind of want to make a focus of getting athletic linebackers that can be good in coverage. Um, Because I think, you know, that's a position where teams kind of pinpointed the Patriots' weakness, I think, passing underneath. And so I think if you have more speed at the linebacker position, you're going to be able to have guys who can make tackles, you know, without letting guys make big plays so you know I think that's also another key position offensive line I think with the trade of Shaq Mason you kind of have a hole in on the interior line so I think a center or a guard you know might be something they look at curious to see what they do with Isaiah Wynn because I believe this is the last year of his uh, contract and so could they look at tackle you know I think that that's another spot but I think you know to a lesser extent wide receiver might be a spot that you look at. But I think again, with the trade of, or the trade for Devontae Parker, it kind of lessens that need a little bit that you don't need to take a receiver in the first round. You know, that's something that you could do in the fifth or sixth round, um, and see if you could get someone, you know, with at, at decent value. So that's another position that I'm curious about. but. Uh, taking a look at some of the players, um, I think taking a look at some of the top available cornerbacks, just to get an idea, um, Sauce Gardner out of Cincinnati is probably the first cornerback that's going to go in this draft. Uh, the Patriots may not be able to get some of these kind of top tier guys, Gardner, Dar- Derek Stingley. Uh, Trent McDuffie, Andrew Booth Jr., Kyler Gordon, uh, Kyer Elam, Roger McCreary. I think that at least a couple of those guys the Patriots have been linked to. Um, So I think those are some guys that could go in the first round. Um, Some other guys that the Patriots could look at later, uh, Kobe Bryant, the cornerback out of Cincinnati. Um, He's someone that maybe they could pick in the second or third round. Uh, Josh Job out of Alabama. He's also another guy that they could take um, in kind of the middle rounds. Marcus Jones out of Houston. Um, Mario Goodrich is someone that I kind of like. He played for Clemson, uh, but he probably would be someone that would be another mid-round pick. So I don't think that the Patriots are going to be able to get any of these, you know, really high-talent high cornerbacks. Um, But you never know, you know, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the early picks, because I think, you know, defense could be a position position that teams, you know, kind of teams kind of look at, Um, you know, obviously you have a lot of wide receiver talent, but I don't think, you know, when you look at the guys like Garrett Wilson, Drake, uh, Drake London, you know, Chris Olave. Jameson Williams, you know, I don't know if they're going to be there at 21 when the Patriots pick. Um, <clears throat> I also think that um, defensive end might also be a position that the Patriots look at as well. Um, or actually, no, I want to take a look at the linebackers first. Um, inside linebacker, I think is we're going to where the Patriots are going to try to look uh, for someone that I think can play a similar game to Devontae Hightower, Dante Hightower when he came into the league. You know, is kind of a quick sideline-to-sideline side guy. Um, Nicobe Dean, Devin Lloyd, Quay Walker are a couple guys that I think could seriously be great fits for the Patriots, but I don't know if they're going to fall very far. Um, Christian Harris out of Alabama is a guy that I've had my eye on for a while. Um, he could be someone that could really help out the Patriots with his speed. Uh, Chad Muma, you've probably heard his name a lot, um, linebacker out of Wyoming. He's someone who the Patriots are kind of linked to. Um, so very curious to see how they approach that position. Uh, Malcolm Rodriguez was someone that I think the Patriots could take a flyer on late in the draft. He's someone that I think is incredibly undersized for his position, but I think could be a solid Patriot-type player. He could play really well in special teams. He's someone to keep an eye on. Uh, but I wouldn't expect that they draft him until maybe the fifth or sixth round. Um, and then I think defensive end, uh, the Patriots might have... It's not really... I mean, I don't know if I'd classify it as a need because, you know, you got Matt Judon, you got some solid pass rushers. But I think if there's someone that falls, like Trayvon Walker out of Georgia... He's also rumored to maybe even be the number one pick. But I think if he, if he falls, um, if the Patriots can get their hands on someone like him or someone like Jermaine Johnson out of Florida State, you know, those are guys that I think could pair really well with <clears throat> with Matt Judon off the edge. So I think that's also something to keep in mind for the Patriots. Um, you know, and I think that First round, I believe their strategy is going to be, you know, if someone like Nickobe Dean or um, someone like Nickobe Dean or Devin Lloyd falls to 21, they might really, they might have no choice but to pick um, one of those guys. If they fall, you know, Jordan Davis, an interior lineman, if he falls to 21, the Patriots absolutely should draft him. He has... The craziest speed that I've ever seen for someone that size. I believe that he's like 350 pounds and he can move so he would be someone that would be like an obvious pick if he did fault it at 21 but I think if some of those players don't fault the Patriots probably would be better, better off just trading back so but we'll see. Thursday night, obviously, the first round. Um, so I wanted to let you guys know that we have some great content coming up this week um, for the podcast. I think we'll be putting out a uh, mock draft. I'll do a mock draft like I did last year. So I'll do a mock draft um, and then post my picks on both of the social media pages um, on Twitter and on Facebook for Not Your Average. Boston Sports Podcast. Make sure that you're following both of those pages uh, to be able to see that. And then Friday, we'll have a guest to recap the first round of the draft, so I'm excited for that. We'll let you guys know who that guest is later in the week. I'll give you a hint, it is a return guest, so we'll announce that later this week. Um, And then Saturday, after all the picks have been announced, we'll get a quick reaction video. Probably we'll put that up on the Uh, Facebook page for the podcast so again make sure you're following those pages to get those updates but really excited for it I think it's going to be a fun week of content so be on the lookout Thursday for the uh, the mock draft picks and then obviously guest Friday will recap the first round and then Saturday we'll get a video to uh, recap the entire draft for the Patriots Probably not going to recap the entire NFL draft, but I think just focusing um, on the Patriots. So that will be really fun, really looking forward to it. Um, So we will take a look at another uh, New England sports team, the uh, Revolution or the uh, Poor Revolution, who have lost uh, five of of their first eight games in MLS action. They dropped a 3-2 decision to DC over the weekend, DC United over the weekend. And it's kind of a, it's unfortunate, it's kind of the same issues for the revolution. You know, I think that they've gotten better in the attacking half being able to put some goals on the board, but defensively there still is a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of improvement that needs to happen, and I think that it needs to happen quickly because the revolution really can't afford to be you know, passed by the entire Eastern Conference um, by the time May and June roll around. You know, you really need to kind of get your legs under you in the revolution. I've been very porous in in the defensive half, and I think, you know, I don't think it's necessarily one player, although there are certain players that look completely out of place on some goals that have happened recently, and it's really frustrating because it kind of is like It's kind of obvious to me, you know, and I don't begin to think that I am a very like an expert on Major League Soccer or even the game of soccer in general. But I think it's pretty obvious when you see certain players out of position on goals and it's like, how are these players playing? You know, how are these players on the field? And I know that typically I don't like to be super critical of players, but I think that. Um, omar gonzalez has just been a really poor fit um, on this revolution team and i understand bringing him in and i understand having him around the team because he's a player who's won and he's won multiple championships and he's done it with bruce arena uh, but it's just it's it's very obvious to me that he's just getting exposed to left and right and it's just really frustrating because the revolution have to understand that you have goaltending now that can't bail you out the same way that Matt Turner did. And I'm not trying to say that Brad uh, that Brad Knighton is a bad goaltender. That's not what I'm saying because he's actually made some big saves recently. Um, but I think you're not going to have that elite goaltending that you had last year. Um, and you're going to need to figure it out. Figure it out yourselves. You know You're going to need to play better defense. You're going to need to not let guys be in the box, you know, unmarked and things like that. So I think, you know, it's getting to the point that the defense is being a real, real problem and, you know, is really preventing this team from getting on a run and reeling off wins. You know, they had some nice goals on Saturday. A couple goals, a great one from. Well, Buxa had one. And then Brandon By had a great goal in the first half. And I think maybe you're starting to see some momentum in the attacking half, but you can't win games five to four. You know, you're not going to be able to score that many goals. Like you need your defense to come up with big stops. You're going to need, you know, your goaltending to make a save or two. And, you know, I didn't want to be overly critical of Brad Knighton, but that was a pretty bad goal that he let in at the end of the first half. in or at dc you know a shot that he really should have had and it goes in and the revs you know had to come back from a two goal deficit you know they got one but they couldn't get two and so it's like you need your defense to be better but you also need your goaltending to come up with big saves when it matters and the revs really are not getting either of those things so you know it has to improve and it kind of has to improve quickly because the revolution have just seven points tied for the fewest um, in the Eastern Conference and are, I believe, four points out of a playoff berth. You know, if we're already talking about that now, you know, it's not really a good sign. Uh, the Revs will finish off the month of April with a home match against Inter-Miami, 7.30 Saturday start at Gillette Stadium. That's the next thing for the Revs, so, you know, hopefully they can get some wins they can get some wins together, get some points together, so they can kind of make a run in the Eastern Conference. But, you know, it's got to happen pretty quickly if they're going to want to be a playoff team. So now we will take a look at the NBA playoffs and take a look at each of the series. Uh, you had four games yesterday. So we'll take a look at those games in those series. Uh, Milwaukee with a huge win over the Bulls, one nineteen. 19 one nineteen ninety five. 1995, uh, that was game four and the Bucks are now up three games to one. Uh, very interesting how this series has gone because I think you had both, both games in Milwaukee that were close and down to the wire and the bulls were actually able to win one of them. And it kind of made me think, okay, maybe the bulls are going to be a problem for Milwaukee. You know, if they're going to be able to play them close. Um, and win a close game, but it's been the exact opposite in the last two games in Chicago that the Bucks have blown out the Bulls by 30 points in game three and 24 yesterday. So I don't expect that the Bulls are going to be able to come back and win that series. I would expect that the Bucs close out that series, but just very interesting how that series has gone. Chris Middleton obviously has been out for the Bucs, missed games three and four unclear about how much time he might miss but obviously the bucks are a potential opponent for the celtics in the second round as the two seed plays the three seed um, in the second round so the celtics would have home court advantage um, but yeah it would be an interesting wrinkle if chris middleton is not available make things makes things pretty e- easier on the celtics i'm not going to say pretty easy because obviously Giannis is a guy that can take over an entire series so I'm curious to see how that series finishes but I would expect the Bucks to win game five um, Denver getting a big win against the Warriors yesterday afternoon a late win as Jokic found Will Barton for the go-ahead they're not the go-ahead three but the three that kind of put the game out of reach I thought that Denver played really well in this game, you know, an elimination game with their backs against the wall, but I ultimately don't really think that they're going to be able to win this series. Um, I just think the Warriors have been way too potent offensively, and, you know, I think that there's there's a lot to be said for the Denver crowd and, you know, pumping that team up that you're not really going to get the same thing in Game 5. Um, but, hey, if they win game five, anything is possible. But Golden State, I think, has just been way too good offensively that it kind of was bound to happen that they'd have a defensive letdown. But, you know, I don't... One of the things I didn't like about that game um, is Jokic is on the bench for defensive purposes late in that game. And to me, you shouldn't be the MVP. MVP if you're getting subbed off late in games for defense, like, I'm sorry, you. if there are certain moments in the game that you cannot play or your coach takes you out of, like, you're not the MVP, and I don't care what any fancy stat tells you, you know, about how good Jokic has been, it's like, we all know how good he is, but if he's getting subbed off late in games because he gets exposed defensively, like, what are we talking about? We're talking about a guy who... Okay, fine, if he doesn't play defense, you shouldn't be the MVP if you're the most valuable player. You should excel in every single facet of the game. And it's just like, I don't know, if you wouldn't say MVP again, that's great, but you should be able to play defense and you shouldn't have to be subbed off the floor in in an elimination game for defense. So, I don't know, that just really bothered me, and it's going to really bother me if Jokic ends up winning the MVP, because... That's not an MVP, you know, and I think, yeah, not to kind of make this more about Rudy Gobert, but if you saw the way that the Clippers exposed him in the playoffs last year, like, are you really telling me that that's the defensive player of the year? That's the guy that's won it three times? Like, really? So, I don't know. It's just something that kind of caught my attention um, late in that game. Uh, the Heat with the big win over the Hawks by 24, that was kind of Kind of surprising to me because the Hawks, you know, came in, played really well. Game three was able to get a win on a late shot by Trey Young. But I don't know. Where was the fight back last, last night? You know, it just was kind of strange to see that the team kind of just not, not gave up because the Heat, like the Celtics, are one of those teams that they can demoralize you by playing really good defense and playing, you know, type of offense that is really hard to defend. But... I mean, where was the where was the fight back? Where was the magic that you saw from the Hawks last year? And I don't know, it just kind of goes to show you that you can have a good playoff run one year, but it doesn't guarantee anything. So, you know, the Hawks probably don't win another game in this series. I would expect that that series will be over in Game 5. Uh, the Pelicans beating the Suns again for the second time in this series. Pretty shocking that... Uh, they were able to win a second game in this series. You know, Devin Booker's is really started to be a big problem for the Suns, who are really struggling to get any offense, you know, out of their bench guys, which I think, yes, the bench was a big part of why they made such a great run to the finals last year. But when you don't have Devin Booker, it's like those guys have to play a larger role. And I think, not that they're not up to it, but I think, They've been playing the entire year as the role players and second, secondary players. And it's like, now you're asking Cam Johnson, Mikael Bridges, and Jake Rowder to be like, okay, you're going to need to score the basketball to replace what Devin Booker did. And, you know, obviously they don't really seem like they're up to it. Um, you know, Chris Paul is playing at a great level. I think DeAndre Ayton has played some good basketball, but, you know, they need that bench to step up or else they might lose. You know, which is kind of hard to believe, but you're watching this Pelicans team and you're watching how well they're playing, you know, Brandon Ingram is turning into a star in front of our eyes. You know, CJ McCollum has been a star in this league, you know, and they're getting great bench production. They're getting great production from their, you know, bench guys and their role players. You know, Valanchunas, I haven't seen him play like this since he was on the Raptors. You know, Herb Jones is really fit in really well. Jose Alvarado is a great guy to bring off the bench. We know they're a team that has a lot of a lot of weapons and a lot of guys that can play different types of games. I really think that if they can ever get Zion back and healthy and playing the way that he was when he was healthy, uh, this team could be very, very good next year. So they're proving to be a really tough task uh, for the Suns as they even the series. Last night, 118-103, the final score. So three games tonight on the NBA schedule. Celtics and the uh, Nets, obviously, game four, 7 o'clock on TNT. The Raptors will play the Sixers, 8 o'clock on NBA TV. Uh, Fred Van Vliet will be unavailable for this game as he had hurt his hip in game four and then missed the rest of the game, so he will not play. Um, Joel Embiid will have surgery on the thumb after the season as he tore some ligaments, I believe, in his thumb. So, the big man apparently will play through the injury. Uh, Philly's not really had too many problems with Toronto in this series, but I thought that it was kind of funny how they kind of came into that game on Saturday, Saturday afternoon and you know, fully expect that Toronto is just going to lie down for them. And, you know, that's not really the, that's not the mindset that you want to come into that type of game with because, you know, Toronto steals that game. And I know Van Vliet is out and in all likelihood they won't win tonight, but it's like that kind of shows you that Philly, maybe they lack a bit of a killer instinct, you know? And I think that to be perfectly honest, that's something the Celtics need to avoid tonight that they need to come into this game and be like, all right, we're going to end the series. We're not gonna mess around. And I think like you make things more difficult for yourself when you don't, you know, take that game four seriously. And I know no team has ever come back from three, nothing, but it's like, you have to come back and win that fourth game and win it resound, not resoundingly, but like you have to bring the intensity that it took to win you, you know, three previous games. So curious to see how that game ends or that how that series goes, um or how that game goes tonight. I would expect that the series finishes tonight in Philly, but who knows, Toronto could come up with another big win. And then a game five tonight in Dallas. Utah against the Mavericks. Luca returned in game four, although it didn't really seem like he was his full self, you know, obviously played really well, but I think he wasn't oh, exactly a hundred percent. but Jalen Brunson has been a big huge, big story for Dallas in this series. Um, but Utah was able to make enough plays down the stretch uh, to win that game on Saturday afternoon. So good win for them as they even the series. Um, so curious to see how that game goes tonight. on TNT and then games tomorrow. There are three games tomorrow. Atlanta and Miami game five. New Orleans, Phoenix game five and then Minnesota Memphis game five. In Memphis that series is tied two games apiece. Just making sure I got all this series. Um, Yeah, I think Minnesota Memphis that was the only series that we haven't talked about quite yet. Um, as, you know, Minnesota has played really well in this series. You know, they've been able to make things interesting. Um, One of the things about Memphis that I may have alluded to in the playoff preview podcast that I did with uh, Derek Welch a couple weeks ago um, is that Memphis is a team that you know, is obviously very talented. They're very deep when you look at their roster, but they're also really young. You know, they're a team that has not seen the playoffs before. You know, I know that they played in the playoffs last year, I believe. Um, But I think, you know, they're still a young team. And I think, you know, yes, Minnesota is too, but it's like you have a young team that won 56 games. You know, it's pretty easy for them to kind of be like, okay, we're the second seed. You know, we should be able to beat the seventh seven seed pretty easily, but this is turning into a really, really good series. You know, I think that because both of these teams are young, it really could go any way. And you know, it's gone a direction that I don't think a lot of people thought, you know, I don't think a lot of people thought that um, Anthony Edwards was going to be as good as he's shown in the playoffs. You know, obviously the number one pick, but He's been tremendous in this series and I think, you know, deserves a lot of credit for <clears throat> Deserves a lot of credit for where the series is now, you know, tied to two, going to game five tomorrow night. So just some other NBA things. <clears throat> These Suns, Monty Williams, the head coach was uh, pretty upset with the free-throw disparity in last night's game. The Pelicans attempted 42 free-throws to the Suns, 15, and... You know, that's a big issue, you know, if free-throw disparity is that crazy that... You know, of course a team is going to have you know, probably is going to have more success if they're going to the free throw line as much as they did. So that's kind of interesting. Um, ben Simmons obviously will be missing game four. That's been a big story because he's out with back soreness. Um, Rudy Gobert is fined for uh, profane language after the Chaz win in game four. Not really something that really needs to be a thing, but, you know, I guess a lot of people are, I I don't know. It's just like, I understand having to find players, but I just think like there are some fines that just to me aren't really necessary, necessary. And, you know, obviously it doesn't matter because 25,000, 50,000 is not much to any of these guys that make millions of dollars, but I don't know. It's just like, and I guess I understand why they do the things that, why they, have things the way that they are because, you know, one guy does it and doesn't get fined, then, you know, it becomes a whole thing. So I get it, but it just is kind of annoying that that has to take place. Um, So we'll take a look at some notes from around the NHL as we approach the postseason, as most teams have two or three games left in the regular season. Alex Ovechkin left the Capitals game uh, or left the Capitals loss to Toronto with um, an injury. So he's day to day. Um, I think that the just taking a look at some of these games yesterday, um, the Minnesota Wild getting a win with 1.3 seconds left, a game-winning goal in overtime Uh, Las Vegas blowing, or Vegas blowing a big lead late in the game, or blowing a two-goal lead late in the game, they lose in the shootout, could end up being a huge loss for them as they try to maintain, or try to get to the playoffs. Um, Eight Eastern Conference teams have 100 points, which is the first time in history that I think all playoff teams, or all eight playoff teams got to 100 points. Um, The... Nominations were announced for the Masterton Trophy, which is awarded to the player who best exemplifies the qualities of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to ice hockey. Uh, the Bruins nominee is Jake DeBrusque, which I thought was very interesting, and I think it's great because I think he's a guy that has played really well this season at times through through a trade request, and I think, you know, as someone who has been able to play through that and play through that cloud. I think that he deserves a lot of credit, you know, not going to say that, oh, he deserves to win the award, but I think it is nice to see that, you know, the uh, writers for the Bruins have nominated him because I think that means a lot. And, you know, I wish the best for him in the rest of his career, you know, if it's going to be here in Boston or if it's going to be elsewhere. Um, so I thought that was really nice. Uh, some of the guys that some of the other players that are up for this award, uh, Carey Price, Chris Kreider, Ryan Getzloff, Mark Stahl, Anthony Duclair, Chara from the Islanders, uh, Kevin Hayes, Brian Boyle, Brent Burns, Andre Kasha, Jack Eichel. So those are just some names that award will be given at the end of the— I believe that it's after the end of the playoffs because they do that— awards show which is typically after the season so taking a look at the game yes there is one game tonight on the nhl schedule uh, the flyers and the blackhawks will play at eight o'clock am um, on espn plus and hulu so that's the only game on the nhl schedule and then naturally there are like 12 games tomorrow so interesting scheduling on on that point on on that so Be interesting to see how the rest of the season shakes out, but you have some standings or some seeding things that are kind of coming into focus a little bit in the Eastern Conference. You have Carolina, obviously, as we talked about. They're the number one seed in the Metro. Florida, the number one in the Atlantic. So in all likelihood, these matchups that I'm going to list now are probably going to be the most likely ones that we'll see uh, to start the playoffs. Toronto against Tampa Bay, the second and the third in the, in the Atlantic, Florida against Washington, and then in the Metro, it would be the Rangers against Pittsburgh, Carolina against Boston, um, although Pittsburgh is only one point ahead of Washington for the third place spot in the Metro. So that could change because Washington does have a game in hand on Pittsburgh. So it could be a possibility that Pittsburgh falls into the wild card spot and maybe make things interesting for the Bruins, but I think that's the only thing that could change is you know Pittsburgh or Washington getting that third seed or the second second wild card spot. Uh, but obviously, with a couple games left, there are still some scenarios that could that could change. Um, So we'll take a look at the Western Conference. So Colorado leading the West with 116 points. It does look like Florida is going to win the President's Trophy. So that is kind of worth noting as the President's Trophy is awarded to the team that has the most points, but I don't think a President's Trophy winner has won the Stanley Cup in 20 years. So it's not exactly an indicator of a team that's going to win the cup. Um, So taking a quick look at the west, uh, Colorado is in first place in the central, Minnesota second, St. Louis third, Uh, Minnesota and St. Louis will play each other in the first round, Uh, but both teams have 109 points. So the home ice advantage is still up for grabs. In the Pacific, Calgary had clinched the Pacific a while ago, so they are First place with 108 points. Edmonton is in second with 98 points. Um, And then Los Angeles is third with 96 points. So it looks pretty likely that those three teams are going to be the teams that go to the playoffs out of the Pacific. Um, And then in the wild card, you have Nashville with 94 points in the first position. And Nashville in second with 93 points. Vegas is three points back of Dallas. With just three games to go, so it doesn't look super... doesn't look really ideal for Vegas after they dropped a shootout loss to uh, San Jose last night. A game that they had a two-goal lead with two minutes left losing in the shootout. So it might be be lights out for Vegas unless they can get Dallas or Nashville to kind of fall on their face um, in the last week of the season. So that's the only thing that could change out west. But the playoff matchups right now would look like Colorado against Dallas, Calgary against Nashville, Edmonton against L. A., and then Minnesota against St. Louis. So I think that that will do it for the NHL. We'll take a look at Major League Baseball, um, and just some notes from around the from the league. The. Yankees had upped security after some kind of ug- kind of an ugly scene after Saturday's game in which the Yankees won on a walk off and then fans were throwing items on the field at uh, Guardians players so that was kind of an ugly scene so um, Yankee Stadium had upped their security uh, after that kind of ugly event um, Kyle Schwarber was ejected in the Phillies shutout loss to the Brewers last night. Um, and then the Reds snapping their 11-game losing streak um, last night or yesterday with a win. So we'll take a look at the standings. Also, is worth noting that uh, Miguel Cabrera um, getting his 3,000th hit the other day, becoming just the seventh player in Major League Baseball history with 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. So taking a look at the standings division by division in the AL East. Yankees and the Blue Jays both at 10-6. Minnesota leads the Central at 8-8, just a half game ahead of Cleveland. Seattle leads the West at 10-6. The Mets lead the National League East at 12-5. St. Louis and Milwaukee lead the Central Cardinals at 9-5. Milwaukee Brewers at 10-6. And And then the Dodgers leading the West at 11-4. The NL West has had a pretty good start to the season, as all as four teams have winning records so far. So I think we'll just take a look at the NFL. Taking a look at just some uh, notes before we get closer to the NFL draft. The Panthers are not expected to make a trade for Baker Mayfield prior to the draft. A couple more teams begin began their voluntary mini camps, Broncos, the Raiders, and the Saints. Dak Prescott uh, feeling healthy, um, entering his off-season workouts. And uh, obviously the big news out of the NFL a couple days ago uh, is that Debo Samuel has requested a trade out of San Francisco. So things could be very interesting for the 49ers. Um, you know, obviously dealing with a player that wants out, Yes, of course, there's always going to be links to the Patriots, but I don't know. I guess I'd be surprised if they made a trade for him. But it could be interesting because, you know, trading him would definitely fetch San Francisco at least one first round pick. So I don't know. The Patriots might be feeling uh, lucky and might try to throw their hat in the ring. But I guess I'd be surprised if they were able to bring in the 49ers wide receiver. So. I think that that will probably do it for this week's episode. Um, obviously, I, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, but um, a big thank you to Scott Bushey for coming on uh, Guest Friday last week. It was a great conversation. Uh, you guys, please go and check that out. It was a really fun interview. Uh, Scott ran the marathon for the fifth time. Uh, so it's really, really neat to be able to catch up, ask Scott some good questions. So definitely check that out if you have not already. Look forward to a great week of NFL Draft content, so uh, stay up to date. Follow the Twitter and the Facebook page um, for the latest NFL Draft updates. All right, everyone, have a good rest of your week, and we'll talk to you Friday to recap the first round of the draft.